location is Capernaum, and the location is the ancient synagogue in which Jesus delivered a message. And I want to take you there right away. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It's where we left off last week. We went to verse 20 in chapter 1, and I just want to start with the text. Then I'll take you into the introduction to the message, and we'll come back around to the text. But they were, they were uh, just to give you the context here, where we were, the calling of the first disciples, we're in the ministry center now of Galilee and in the HQ of Capernaum, and we're in the synagogue, the ancient synagogue of Capernaum, and you can still visit it today. The original foundation, we believe, is the same foundation of the synagogue that was there in the days of Christ. So verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, which was a place of teaching, different from the temple down in Jerusalem, which was primarily a place, of course, for worship and for sacrifices. The Jews were more familiar with the synagogue, really, than the temple. They went to the synagogue a lot more than they went to the temple. And so it was a very important gathering place. And this is where our Lord was found. They went into Capernaum on the Sabbath. They entered the synagogue, and there was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, the teaching of Jesus. For he taught them as one who had authority. And of course, the message title I've chosen for today is an authority like no other. Jesus taught them, all the people, as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He stood out. He wasn't like their regular teachers. And then there was this interruption, verse 23. We see this favorite word interjected of Mark's, John Mark, who wrote this gospel, immediately. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It seems wherever the hand of God is truly at work, the hindrances, those opposition forces that want to interfere with the work of God aren't far behind. I believe that's true, and we certainly see it here. Wherever the hand of God is at work, wherever the good hand of God is at work to bring hope and, and rejuvenation and meaning and redemption to, to, to the world and to humankind, the the work of the evil one is not often far behind to try to meddle with it. And there was this great interrupter. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And the man really didn't have control of his faculties because he was demon-possessed. He was demonized, and he was overtaken really by more than one demon. We know that by the plurality that comes forth later here. But it says, the demons speak. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, they identify who he is. They know who he is. Have you come to destroy us, not me, not me, one demon, but us, a plurality? This man doesn't have control of his own voice anymore. They're speaking through him. Don't let that terrify you, and yet it is pretty unsettling, isn't it? A demonization of a person. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus addresses this demon. He says, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We're less fascinated, perhaps, by reading this account than the eyewitnesses were because we read back into the text. We have 2,000 years of history and on our own Christian experience, if you will, of knowing 
per personally who Jesus is because he raised us to new life in him. If every one of us who's in Christ understands what it's like to, to know the Lord, to understand how he rejuvenates us, how we have new life in Christ. We understand his power. We've had a firsthand encounter with his forgiveness and his joy. We know the joy of Christ and the power of Jesus. But these first-time people, first-century first people who saw the Messiah in the flesh, they had to be convinced that he is who he claimed to be. And they saw him as a Jewish rabbi, a lot of these onlookers, but they didn't understand him to be the Messiah. Not at once. Not all at once. And as he began to teach, they said, there's authority here. There's a difference to who he is. There's a substance to his teaching. And then they saw the, the, the ability to to put down evil spirits, and they started to really step back and say, wait a minute, this is something really unusual. And that was really just the beginning phases of his ministry. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we come to, to not just hear a message, but to be unsettled a bit, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be filled afresh with a vision, a greater vision of what life can be like in following you. It's not dull. It's anything but that. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's the best life possible. May we get to know you better today because we've been here, because we're putting you ahead of everything today, ahead of a ball game or ahead of activities we could do for ourselves. We're putting you ahead of, of it all because you matter, God. You matter the most to us, to each of us. We pray that you will truly matter and that we'll give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just move away from that for just a moment. I promise to come right back to it. <clears throat> it's less than 20 days away, so let me warn you. Fair warning. Don't say I didn't tell you. Some of you need this warning. February 14th is coming. Sometimes some of us have blown that date. We it came and it went, and we didn't know what it was. We didn't know it was important. James and Shirley Dobson, a focus on the family, were married in 1960. They're still married today, but when you hear about an experience that happened in their first year of marriage, you will, you will think it's truly cringeworthy. And you will wonder how such an expert in relationships, marriage and children and all the rest, could blow it so much on his first Valentine's Day event with his young wife. This is hilarious. I didn't know about this until just recently. But on what would be their first Valentine's Day, Shirley, his young wife, had set the stage for a romantic evening. I mean, she really pulled out the stops. She, she uh, set the stage with uh, candles, a pink heart-shaped cake, beautiful candles, terrific food, all of her favorite dishes and his, red and white decorations. But he had gone to work in the morning like it was just another day. He'd put in a 10-hour day at work, all but oblivious to the fact that it was Valentine's Day. When the supper hour came around, he didn't even think about going home. He went off to a diner and grabbed a hamburger to eat. And then after that, he thought, well, his folks lived in town. He thought he'd stop in, check up on them. So he visited his parents. His mom was so kind, she set out a big piece of apple pie for him, and he snacked on that for a while. Finally stumbled home, and the apartment was dark. And he was kind of wondering why it was so gloomy in there. As he turned the lights on, and all he could see was the, just this table that had been set, but the candles were out, and there was just these drips of candles that had been half burned down, and there was stale food, and there had been this obviously festive scene there, but everything was just 
kind of lopped over and sitting there. And he thought, what happened? What did I miss? And then it struck him. Oh, no. It was Valentine's Day. He says, I missed Valentine's Day. He had spent Valentine's Day eating apple pie with his mom. And now he would be eating humble pie for a long time to come. So Valentine's Day, it's less than 20 days away. You have been reminded, uh, in case you need that today. You know, the book of God uh, reminds us uh, that on any level, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You know, often we all know what dashed hopes are like in life. We know how our hearts become sick when something that we have waited for uh, didn't come to fruition. And I think if the truth were told, we all know that we have had our hopes in life dashed over a lot larger things than somebody missing a special time with us. Something a lot bigger than what Shirley Dobson lost that day from her forgetful husband. Maybe you're here today feeling mistreated by somebody that you thought would treat you better. That's a hope deferred. Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe you're here feeling abandoned by somebody. Maybe there's another hope that's deferred in your life. You've reached uh, the later years in your life and you're finding that the golden years aren't so golden. Health has become a bigger challenge than you anticipated it would be. That's brought new issues or maybe there's some extended family issues. There's something, right? Seems it never ends. There may be the lack of work in your life or just the lack of purpose or you name it, you can fill in the blanks. We all have some challenges. They're not far from really any of our lives. But let me encourage you today with something to come back to the biblical story here. Obviously, we didn't live in the first century, but if we did, if we could have, do you think that the people in the times of, of our Lord and the disciples had it easier than we do? Did they have an easier time of life? Was their standard of living somehow higher? Or were their days longer? Or did they have better health care or better jobs? I think we know the answer to that without even looking very deeply into it. What were those days like? They were very difficult. People had much less life expectancy than we do. They didn't know often where their next meal was coming. They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have so much of what we do, of what we take for granted in this life. But for those people who followed Christ, those first century Christians, here's a question for you. For this first century follower of Christ, do you think that their lives were marked more by hope or more by despair? Think about it for a moment. Were their lives marked more by hope or, my, or by despair? What were their days marked by? I want you to think about that. Let's go into the biblical text again, and let's try to put ourselves in there because Mark was an interpreter. John Mark, who wrote this gospel, he was an interpreter of the apostle Peter. Mark himself wasn't on the scene here, but, but Peter was among those who was on the scene. With the first, he was among the first disciples. Of course, he was the, the, uh, the leader of the first disciples. Mark, who wrote this gospel, was an interpreter. As he wrote down the, this gospel, the gospel of Mark, he was an interpreter of the events that, that Peter related to him. And let's look at it with those eyes. And I want you to, to try to sense 
the heart, the mind of, of the people the best we can, those who were the closest associates now of Jesus. Do you think they had hope in their hearts as they saw what Jesus did that day, as he stood up and as he preached, and as, as the people were re responding to what Jesus did? And if you would, to stay really in current context with this, with this gospel, go back to verse 16. We're in chapter 1, and let's identify who we're really talking about. Let me be very clear here. The calling of these individuals, verse 16, uh, who are we talking about? Simon, first of all, Simon and Andrew. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, it says that Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. That's a picture of authority, isn't it? Because look what happens, 18, a picture of Christ's authority. It says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And so see Mark's progression here. You've got these four men who have just trusted their futures, their livelihoods, their confidence, everything they're putting into Jesus. They've got families. They've got vocations. They've got needs. And they're looking at this person, Jesus, and saying, okay, we're going to put our confidence in you. They're letting go of the nets, and they're saying, we don't know where you're taking us. We don't know what you're going to do with us. But do you see what they're doing? They are casting their cares and their, their futures upon him. That's what they're doing. And now they're going to go to work for him. And again, back to my question. Do you think that they have hope or despair as they put themselves under his authority? There's authority that they're responding to in him summoning them, correct? They're not just saying, oh, we're going to watch you for a while and see if we trust you. We're going to just kind of observe you. No, they're saying, okay, we're going to drop what we're doing. This is their vocation, and they've got responsibilities to others. But they're saying, we're trusting you to take care of, of us and them. Here we go. We're with you. And so he says, here we go. We're going to work now. Here's our mission. They're going to see it unfold, and now it's unfolding. Mark's unfolding it as we move up to the, to the ministry uh, capital, if you will, the HQ again, Capernaum, verse 21. They go into Capernaum. So Jesus is leading them. He is their authority. He is their rabbi, their teacher. He's their Messiah. And they're going to see things that they have never, you know, uh, believed yet, right? We know that because we know the whole story. Following Jesus is an adventure. It's anything but boring, right? And, and I hope that we believe that. They sure found that out. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. Now they, who is they? It's all the people, but certainly it included those disciples. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so we see quickly that Jesus is very distinct. One commentator named William Manson said years ago, he said, the rabbis taught and nothing happened. Jesus taught and all kinds of things happened. You see that again and again, especially in the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus uh, was gentle. Jesus preached messages of hope, but I don't believe he preached just feel-good messages. Now, we're not even told the content of exactly what he preached here, are we? The emphasis that Mark is giving us is more on, on the weight of what he preached. It had a, a bearing about it. It had an authority about it, 
and it it was really preaching for life change. We know earlier from the context of what we've been reading here in Mark that Jesus was preaching the good news. He said the time, the kingdom of God is near, and he said, repent, turn, turn around, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He preached for life change. Jesus didn't just come alongside people and say, you're a, you're a good little sinner, you're a nice, loving person, and you don't need to do anything different in your life. He said, you need to turn. You need to turn away from sin, and you need to put your faith in me. You need to follow me. And if you don't follow me, if you look back at your old life and you go back to that, he said, you're not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. He preached for life change. He did. And he had a great authority about him, about his message. Now, we, don't, we want to emulate him. We're not him, obviously, but we need to preach with, with authority. We can read on in the text here, but let, let's look at some other texts that just simply are corollaries. They're supplemental. From Luke's gospel, they were astonished at his teaching for his word-possessed authority. You would expect nothing less, right? If he is God incarnate, his word would be heavy. His word would be weighty. Coming to his hometown, which is Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So the authority of Jesus... The works of Jesus were on display consistently in his teaching. It says in Matthew 22 that no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. They couldn't refute his wisdom. The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. Jesus was a man apart from anything anybody had ever heard. And so if you or I had been there, if we'd have been among the disciples and and the question were asked, what kind of day was this? What kind of season was this in the life of the nation of Israel? It was a season of authority. It was a, a, a day of, of transformational change, a, a day of, of difference when Jesus the Messiah showed up on the scene. And the question that I ask of each of us today is, has the authority of Jesus changed? Has he become less of an authority today than he was then? Think about that question for a moment. Perhaps we don't think of the authority of Jesus as a thing of comfort, yet there's no safer authority than the holy authority of, of God. There's no safer place to be than in the middle of God's will. You've heard that said, and you maybe you've heard that debated. But I want you to think about that for just a moment. Go back with me to verse 22. Verse 22 for just a moment. And see, again, how the people were responding to Jesus. Again, this might sound repetitious, but I, I don't want us to miss this. Maybe uh, it might sound like I'm, I'm killing a dead horse, but I want to make sure it's really dead. <laughs> and, and they were astonished at his teaching, verse 22, and then verse 27, and they were all amazed. So, so this is the response of people. People were hopeful. People were amazed. They were moved. They said, this is a new teaching there is a new authority here. The people were not disappointed. To take you back to the question I asked about five minutes ago, do you think the people were, who were around Jesus, who were believing on Jesus, notably those disciples that he just called, was their hope meter going up or was their despair meter going up? When people come under Jesus' authority, when they make him their true authority in life, when we make ourselves true followers, when we make ourselves true disciples of Jesus, by the way, disciple is mathetes in Greek, which means learner. When we make ourselves learners under the authority of Jesus, do we move up in hope 
or do we move up in despair according to what the texts do? What do you think the text is telling us? Did they move up in hope or despair? Did they become more dis- discouraged and defeated? Or did they, it sounds to me like they grew more amazed, like they grew more hopeful, like they grew stronger. And they just stood back and they said, whoa, who is this? You see the implication of that for your life? What's that old hymn? Just a closer walk with thee. I can't sing it well because I'm not a singer. The closer you and I walk with the king, the more his power will rest on us to defeat the things that discourage us. Whether those things are coming from the spiritual uh, foe of our soul, the evil one himself, whether those foes are coming just from our, our, our fallen nature, the flesh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, whether those things are coming from just the, the, the evil world system around us, those, those foes of, of our faith, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The closer we walk, the truer we walk in step with Jesus Christ, friends. The, the truer we are in step with the true authority of Jesus, where we're not fooling around, we're, we're truly loving Jesus Christ. He's first. We're truly trying to grow in our faith life with Jesus. The more in step we are truly with him, the more of his authority and power is at work in, in and through us, and the more, those, the, the more hope we'll have in our life and the less despair. A despairing Christian is, is in some sense an oxymoron. A believer shouldn't be despairing. I'm not saying we don't have bad days. We have a lot of tough days. I'm not saying we don't have difficult circumstances. We have got a lot of them, plenty of them. But if we're walking with Jesus, if we're learning to submit to him, to his authority, his, we're going to be overwhelmed with his hope's going to come. It's going to overrun our despair. His power is going to move, move into it. It's going to. I believe that's what, what happens again and again. If we're not in step with him, if we're not submitting to his authority in our lives, then, then we're going to have all those things chasing us if we're living an unsubmitted life to Jesus Christ. How does the authority of Christ encourage us or give us hope? And I, I just mentioned those two verses. Well, it, it just does because you have his power at work, where his power is present. Where his authority is present, his power is present, right? Where his, where his, but, but God will never release his power where his authority is, is, is not in agreement. So I'll give, you, I'll give you more illustration of that here as we move on. As we move on. Mark 124, this is an interesting sidebar moment. The demons themselves have an interesting admission here. Notice how the demons apprehend Jesus, how they understand him. They do not view him as the one who must come to suffer and die, but as the victorious Holy One of God. They know who he is. They don't know his full mission. They're not omniscient. They don't know the future. At this point in the biblical record, they don't know the future. They don't understand his whole mission, but they know who he is. And look what they say about him. They know his authority. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then it goes back to the singular. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you know, with a word, Jesus gets him out of there. With a word. He says, get out of him. One truth the authority of Jesus Christ illustrates here is this. Our God is never defeated. That should help you and I take great comfort. 
Because you and I, if we are God's children, we need not be helpless victims, even in the midst of threatening circumstances. I need to hear that today for myself because some weeks are pretty tough. Family things, different things are pretty challenging for just like in your life, I have my own situations and difficulties. I've leaned on a couple of the staff this week to bear some of those burdens in my life, and they've been so encouraging to my heart and helpful. And I've been reminded, they have reminded me, Kent, God is never defeated. We can look to him. We can lean on him. You know, the oppressed man in this account in Mark's gospel, he had no control over his own life anymore. He was that bad off. But with a word... Jesus frees him with a word we give the devil too much credit he's a he's an awful adversary but with a word God breaks the stronghold of Satan in that man's life with a word it's done and so first things first if we're going to find comfort in Christ's authority and I've said this already but let me just restate it we need to walk with him knowing Jesus being a Christian is obviously the first thing that's putting yourself under the authority of Christ, but then we need to continue to walk with him. A life not submitted, though, to Jesus Christ will not have God's power and will, and will be at the mercy of the forces arrayed against it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've heard me say, if you've been in this church for any length of time, that, and I don't preach about it a lot, but it's possible to be what I call, I use the term, pig pen Christian. You know what I mean by that? If you don't, I'll, I'll restate it real quick. We can come to, to genuine faith in Jesus, but if we're not wise and careful, if we don't feed our faith, if we don't plug into the fuel sources of reading the word and prayer and the disciplines of the spiritual life, if we don't grow our faith and just practice the things that help it grow, if we're not careful, our old sin nature just will try to overrun us and take over. The world system will, will push us away, try to remold us into what we once were, the old life. The devil will try to hound us to go back to what we once were and want, what we once did. We'll basically go back to living in a pig pen. We'll go back to old habits. We'll start to feed the, the lower nature. And our spiritual interests and desires will just kind of go flat. We won't have a desire for the better things, the spiritual things that God wants to feed us with. And we'll just, we'll just be flatlined, if you will, spiritually speaking. We'll be plateaued. We won't really grow spiritually. We won't have an interest in spiritual things. And we won't want to grow. And we'll probably become negative. And we'll, we'll probably just become uh, stone throwers at other believers that are trying to grow and trying to serve, serve Christ well. Not a good place to be. Easy to become that. Easy. Harder to grow in some ways, isn't it? to confess our sins and to, to humble ourselves and to, to, to just, you know, realize that we've got a long, a lot of room to grow in our lives and to keep going forward. Easier to live an unsubmitted life, at least in the short run, than a submitted one. But if we live an unsubmitted life, it becomes a non-victorious kind of a Christian life, and the devil beats us up, if you will. He doesn't take away our salvation, but he sows a lot of doubt in our lives. We become confused. We become frustrated. We become pretty difficult people, unhappy with ourselves. And that's, that's a bad place to be. And so I challenge us, friends, to think clearly about the authority of Jesus and how important it is to every day to embrace, really, repentance as a lifestyle. Because that's repentance we sometimes see, I think, incorrectly. Repentance is not essentially a matter of ceasing to commit a particular sin. That's an aspect of it. I can certainly repent of a certain specific sin that the Lord has revealed to me I should turn from. I, I would not say that isn't repentance, uh, pure and simple. 
But the fundamental meaning of repentance is to turn away from what we are doing and to embrace what God is doing wholeheartedly. That is exactly what we see happening in the Gospel of Mark with these four men that Jesus called. They are putting their futures, their families, their livelihoods in the hands of Christ. That's chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, which we just read a moment ago. That's repentance. They're dropping everything and saying, we're turning from, our, from ruling our lives and being the, the, the God of our own existence to letting you be the God of our existence, Jesus. We're turning from ourselves to you. You lead. You're in charge. We're trusting you. That's faith. It's repentance. It's turning from the, their, their, their self-rule to his rule, and they're going with him. And I believe that's an everyday thing, embracing him every day that way, saying, God, I don't want to, if I, every morning when I get up, I got to really make that choice. Who's in charge today, Kent or Christ? And some days, I don't win. He wins, and those are the good days. Some days, I take, take charge, and then it's not a good day. And I think most of us understand that battle. We need to embrace life as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We need to see life as not just a, I'm on easy street because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. Jesus never taught that. Our theme verse this year, 2 Timothy 2, 1, I added verse 3 for today, but it's be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to young Timothy. He says, Timothy, share in the suffering of, of following Jesus as a good soldier. And I want to unpack that just a little bit, just a little bit. As you and I think of soldiers, soldiers are, are, are known for their discipline. They're not called to just punch a clock. They're called to duties, to activities. For the Christian, the metaphor of the, of the Christian life is that we have three main battlefronts that we face. There's an evil world system that is no friend to God, the world system around us. We have our own sinful nature within us, the unredeemed part of us that will not inherit eternity. And then there is the evil one himself, which, which is pictured here in the Bible, the text that we're looking at, Satan himself. And frankly, Satan knows how to mess with us using our fallen nature against us, and he's at work in the world's evil system. So the passage in, in view today in Mark 1, uh, Satan is really evident in, uh, he's evident in that text, but he's evident in all of these areas, right? The evil world system, the believer's fallen nature, and of course, in himself. And I don't want to suggest to you today for a moment that the devil is behind everything that's wrong in your life. Please don't leave this service saying, oh, the devil's behind every, every little difficulty in my life. That's not at all what I'm saying. But it is naive to think that there's no warfare with him either. It is naive to think that he won't use difficulties in your life against you, that he won't try to use those to disillusion you or discourage you. And so you and I need to stay submitted to Jesus because what does the word of God say? It says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. But you can't resist the devil in your strength. You cannot beat him in your own strength. You can't. I can't either. The Apostle Paul said, for this purpose also I labor, not in my strength, Paul's strength, I strive according to his dunamis, power. Dunamis is the Greek word from which we get dynamite. He says, I, use, I lean into God's power, his dynamite, from, from uh, which mightily works within me. I'm getting my power from his authority. It's a derived power. It's a derived authority. And that's how I speak. That's how I write. That's how I preach, he says. It's from dunamis, his power. 
that he gives to me. And then consider the net effect of the authority that Jesus manifested. I keep asking this question because I want you to see the benefit of submitting to Christ's authority in our day-to-day life. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 of the text. The net effect. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves. They saw what Jesus did to the, to the man that was afflicted, the demonized man. They saw that the demon convulsed him and left, and they go, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And then verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus moves people towards hope. He gives hope, genuine hope. And those who submit to him, who follow him, are also dispensers of hope. We give hope through him, don't we? He makes you a minister of hope. Here's what he says, of course, through Matthew's gospel. As a commission, the great commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let's read it together. You know it well, but let's read it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Stay close to Jesus Christ, my friend, where the authority of Jesus Christ is present. The hope of his people is assured. Let's stay close to him. So is the hope of all the world as we stay close to him. Father, we come to the end of a service, but hopefully the beginning of new hope in our hearts as we stay close to you. Hope will not, will not diminish. It will increase. And we need hope in our daily living. Much, much hope is needed in many hearts here today. I believe that. Sometimes we're, we're, we're tired. Sometimes we're weary. Sometimes we're wondering about how to go on. Sometimes we don't know what we're worried about the future. We're worried about loved ones. We need hope desperately. Thank you that, Lord, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you will comfort us. You will encourage us as we keep giving ourselves daily to living close to you and under your true authority. You will fill us with hope. Your hope will overpower the doubts. Your hope will overpower the discouragements. Your hope will push back the enemy things that, that, that uh, assail all of us. And we can live in joy and hope. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we can be messengers of hope and encouragement to others, including those in the family of God and those that have no relationship yet with you. Thank you, God, for the calling to be messengers, fellow messengers with you. We're so thankful, God. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, thank you so much for being with us this morning.